Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Michael Stevens. He analyzes global politics and international development, advising governments and philanthropists working in the Middle East and South Asia. Michael is an associate fellow at London's RUSI and a senior research fellow with the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia. He's the co-editor of What Next for Britain in the Middle East, published by Ivy Torres. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be back. You know, it's just about a year ago that we had you on the podcast to talk about your new book. Wow, what a difference a year makes. Putin's war, Johnson gone, the death of the Queen. Back in October of last year, the Foreign Secretary was one Liz Truss. Now, you told me then you wanted to produce a book that stood the test of time. Well, I went back to it, Mike, and you know what? It does stand the test of time. And I would urge anyone even moderately interested in the region and the UK's role in it to go out and get yourself a copy of the book. Now, let me ask you, first of all, about the Gulf. And I want to know how the GCC states are feeling towards the UK, given all that has happened here in this country, politically, economically, and otherwise, since we last spoke. Well, I think that there have been a number of factors which have changed the way in the GCC has viewed itself as an organization, the constituent countries within them. Uh, And then, of course, our political turmoil inside the UK has greatly affected their perception of us. So clearly, since we last spoke, the GCC, or at least the the big oil producers in the GCC, have become far more geostrategically important than they were even, even eight months ago. They are now crucial linchpins of global energy security and returning to a point in global politics that looks a little bit like where we were in the 70s, where these relationships with the oil-producing states in the Western Hemisphere were critical to economic security and domestic political stability. And so that has given the Qataris, the Saudis, the Emiratis, and even the Kuwaitis quite a strong lever in terms of their ability to deal with the UK government, uh, the access they have. And of course, the Qataris on top of that have the World Cup, which gives them, you know, they are center point of the world's attention and the world's focus. So the relationships are actually probably tighter than they've ever been. The dependence of the UK is probably more on the Gulf states than the Gulf states depend uh, on the UK. I think that table has flipped a little bit. So there's a couple of aspects here. One, clearly for our domestic, political and economic security, these relationships have to be strong. Two, the messages we're sending out do not reflect how important these countries are now to our uh, domestic political scene. We, up until recently, didn't even have a Middle East minister. Uh, We chopped and changed foreign secretaries like it was sort of coming and going for breakfast. And obviously the, the loss of Her Majesty the Queen has been, you know, a big blow in terms of continuity. And I think our our Gulf partners have looked at this and sort of said, well, what is what is going on? You were a country that we relied on in good times and bad. Yes, we had our up moments and our down moments, but, you know, you were a, a sign of stability and strength. And now, who do we phone? Who do we speak to? What do, do you care about us? Is there anything in your relationships outside of trade? Uh, what is your geopolitical focus? And these are questions that 
we can't answer. I think it's fair to say that the UK has done extremely well in terms of sending trade missions out to all the main Gulf states. We've worked pretty hard on trying to get a free trade deal uh, across all six. Uh, and, th- and that is to be commended. But the messages that we're sending out and that are being interpreted by the Gulf are are, are pretty, pretty bad, really. And we're paying a price for that. Um, I would say one thing, though, is that the, the pound is extremely weak right now. And like or loathe this government's recent mini budget, removing VAT off goods leaving the country means that uh, golfies will come to London, they will buy expensive things, they will get their VAT uh, reduction at Heathrow Airport and they will fly back. So in that very narrow corridor, actually, it's, it's, it's a very positive time for uh, Qataris, Saudis, Emiratis to be visiting the UK uh, and to be investing in the UK. Well, there's an irony there too, isn't it? Because it was that uh, cut in the in the 45p tax that really uh, caused the the great anxiety. And uh, as you say, here the very wealthy in the in the Gulf are going to benefit uh, a quieter um, uh, point in that budget, mini budget, I guess we should call it. Uh, now, Mohammed bin Salman, you mentioned him. In the end, he didn't turn up to the Queen's funeral. I wonder, do you think he was advised by his own people that he might face some unpleasant headlines? Or do you think our government gave him a gentle suggestion? It was not quite the time. And a supplementary question. Does the fact that MBS ordered the killing of the journalist Jamal Ajoji, that he's imprisoning anyone who criticizes him to hugely long sentences? I mean, with the most recent two poor women, 34 years and 45 years for tweets. Does any of that matter to policymakers here? Yes, it does. Um, and that is reflected in the fact that MBS didn't come to the funeral of Her Majesty. I think it's it's still too soon, Bill. Uh, it's been four years since Jamal Khashoggi was uh, murdered in the Saudi consulate. And the general perception in the UK uh, is that it's, it's, not, it's not right to be inviting him for state visits. When he becomes the king, I think that that will change because he is the head of state or will be the head of state of Saudi Arabia, in which case, you know, there are certain protocol obligations that you have um, because he is the head of state. At the moment, he's not the head of state. And I think that, to be perfectly honest, it's not good politics to be seen to be too close to him. It's still controversial. But at the same time, the UK cannot afford to alienate Saudi Arabia. So, we're in a bit of a catch-22 here. Now, I don't know the exact intricacies as to whether the UK government recommended that he didn't come or whether the Saudi uh, embassy here said, look, you know, you're going to get some bad press. There's a high chance of protesters. Uh, this isn't a very good uh, situation for you to be to be in. Uh, but his absence was noticeable. Other Gulf leaders, of course, did turn up and had audiences with King Charles. MBS has met Prince Charles, and they, they, they did, uh, when MBS came in 2018, have a, have a private lunch, and they do know one another. But I don't think that we're at the stage where it would be good for King Charles to be seen to be close to MBS. Uh, I'm not, I can't speak for King Charles, but I don't think he would be particularly keen anyway, given what we know about his, his political leanings. Uh, I don't think he'd be too keen on it. So... It's a very tricky line to tread, Bill. There's a couple of reasons for this. One, MBS is still young, which means that 
barring some, you know, black swan event, he's going to be the leader of Saudi Arabia for 35, 40 years. Saudi Arabia is undergoing a huge political and economic and social change. He's leading that, you know, if you want to be dealing and have a relationship with Saudi Arabia, it has to be with MBS. In, in, in my day job, you know, when I deal with Saudi Arabia, it, it, it really does come down to that. You, you're not going to get stuff done unless the guy at the top signs it off. And that's always MBS. So that is something that you just have to bear in mind as a practicality of dealing with the Saudis. And, and what I said before about them returning to their mid 1970s position of geopolitical influence, that's just, I'm afraid to say the realities of the situation. The second point I wanted to make is, you're absolutely right to say that he has not really wound back on some of his uh, more tyrannical uh, behaviours. Uh, that's very difficult for people to countenance here, but there's not much we can do about it. Uh, so I don't think there'll be a huge amount of interference or prodding. If you remember, Liz Truss couldn't actually name uh, when she was Foreign Secretary a time in which she'd raised human rights issues um, with any of the Gulf states which I think was deeply troubling, and I think it was the wrong position to take. I went on record in the House of uh, House of Lords International Relations Committee saying that was wholly unacceptable. If a foreign secretary is not willing to state uh, that human rights are part of their geopolitical concerns, particularly in an era of ideology, then then I think we're we're in a bad place. Hmm. Let's turn to the JCPOA, Mike, and justifiable anxiety our uh, MENA allies have about it. What is the UK government's position on the JCPOA and to what extent are we engaged in what may well be a doomed exercise? It's, a, it's really interesting that you phrase it as a doomed exercise. I mean, the, the, the most dangerous thing that can happen to the JCPOA is that people just stop caring. I mean, the, the, I'm sure like you and most of your listeners, it, it's quite hard to stay focused on the JCPOA when it just keeps dragging on and dragging on and dragging on. At one point, it seems like they're almost going to reach a deal. They're hours away from reaching a deal and then they don't reach a deal. And then the Americans posture and then the Iranians posture. And it, it just seems to be going on forever, doesn't it? And the longer we drag on, the more likely it is that a Republican president's going to come back because let's be honest, Joe Biden's poll numbers are not great. And then we just go through this whole cycle all over again. So I probably am siding with your description of it. I do think it's a doomed enterprise. And I think we're probably in a semi-permanent state of sanctions on Iran and Iran just kind of busting the sanctions here and there, using their leverage as an oil producer to have some geostrategic influence. So the UK obviously is clearly committed to getting a deal. That, that position has not changed through... I think five, six foreign secretaries, four prime ministers. So the UK would love nothing more than to see the JCPOA signed because the underpinning position there is that bringing Iran into the fold and engaging with them prevents them from some of the bad behaviours that we've seen recently where they escalate, then we have to escalate in return. The problem that you've got is that the Israelis and the Saudis in particular are still banging on about Iran as if it was world threat number one. And the truth is, is that the world is moving on, Bill. The global threat right now is climate change, food insecurity, and Putin being a completely crazy man in eastern Ukraine, right? It is not the Iranians. And the truth is, is that geopolitical bandwidth can only take so much bad news before you start to filter out other information. You know, 
And in the US and the UK and other places where people are worried about energy bills and heating, actually people start to drive pragmatic solutions. Um, so things like what percentage of enriched uranium exists in Iran starts to become the concern of very, very few people in a small niche who constantly warn about the threat of a nuclear Iran. And what you see within that niche is a breakdown of opinion. So you're seeing this in Israel now. You're seeing senior generals in Israel openly saying that Netanyahu was at fault for trying to trash the deal, that we're in a really bad place now where it can't be solved. And when you've got the Israelis talking like this, I, I, I think it's, it's fair to say that, you know, we, we've driven this, this political conundrum, and it is a political conundrum more than a military conundrum, uh, into a sort of Gordian knot. And my question would be, how much political, economic and strategic capital does the UK really want to waste on a scenario that could just keep dragging on for 10 years and eventually become a bit like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict where fewer and fewer people care and actually the main questions of the day are, are far more pertinent to your domestic political agenda. So, you know, I would caveat that by saying, yes, absolutely, we're part of the, you know, E3 plus 3 mechanism. We care greatly about making sure that Iran doesn't have a nuclear weapon, but there are other things at play now, and I just don't think this is top of the agenda. Mm. Well, now you mentioned Israel, and uh, Ian Black has a, <clears throat> a wonderfully forensic and clear-sighted chapter on our relations with Israel and, and the conflict. Uh, Liz Truss told Yair Lapid in September when they're at the UN that she was, quote, considering moving our embassy to Jerusalem. What do you think the consequences would be were that to happen, Mike? It's a strange comment, isn't it? And I think maybe it was on this podcast or elsewhere where I made a point that the Israeli-Palestinian debate in the UK now looks a lot like the American debate, which is that if you lie to the right of the centre, you're pro-Israel. If you lie to the left of the centre, you're pro-Palestine. Most people who engage in the political debate about Israel and Palestine have never been there. They don't speak the languages. They don't know the cultures. They've not been in, in a synagogue and they've not been in a mosque. And yet they seem to think that they should have an extremely strong opinion either way. And, you know, it's, it's probably not a secret to your listeners that I'm a member of the Conservative Party. I was a candidate for the Conservative Party and I spent a long time around Conservatives, some of whom brought this issue up. And I was shocked by how ignorant they were about the situation. Having myself lived in Jerusalem for three years uh, and speaking both languages, I find it very, very troubling that the ideological right seems to think that moving the embassy to Jerusalem unilaterally is somehow a solution to the conflict. It's not a solution to the conflict. It doesn't really create any change strategically between the Israelis and the Palestinians. It doesn't benefit really the Israeli population, most of whom live on the coast and couldn't care less where your embassy is. It does benefit certain aspects of the Israeli right, who would be very keen to see that because, you know, Jerusalem is seen as part of the eternal capital. Now, I do think there is a legitimate argument for moving an embassy to Jerusalem if it's within the 47 borders, uh, uh, 48, 47 borders of Jerusalem, whereby that's legal recognized Israel. But if you're starting to talk about recognizing entire sovereignty over the capital of Jerusalem, which is as yet since 1981 been annexed by the Israelis, but not recognized outside of about five or six countries, 
you're making some pretty bold statements about the conflict that I think don't lead anywhere good. Now, what the Conservative Party thinks and, and what trusts to the extent that she understands the conflict thinks is that, well, you know, the Gulf Arab states don't care so much about this. It's not such a big deal anymore. Let's just do it, get it over and done with, and uh, we'll be fine. We won't pay a price with the key players in the region who we need to have close relationships with. And that's probably true, Bill. The Saudis are not going to punish you. The Qataris are not going to punish you for moving the embassy. They didn't punish the US. So I guess that may be some of the thinking underpinning it. But in terms of what we can change, you know, Ian made a good point in the chapter, which is that actually we sort of play at the edges here and we haven't set the agenda when it comes to Israel and Palestine uh, and so do we really have the keys to unlock that door? And the answer is probably no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it was, what is it? Honduras, Guatemala and Kosovo are the only others that follow, follow Donald Trump's lead. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, Wasn't it like it's, Na- Nauru Palau as well? Something like that. <laughs> it's, uh, or Vanatu, Vanuatu. Yeah, then yeah, the UK, you know, uh, on the UN Security Council, I mean, it would be just a, a huge signal, but I think it's a you know, it speaks to the uh, lack of competence of this trust government that you would even. Well, here's the question, Bill. You know, it sends a huge signal, but is anybody listening? <laughs> and I think that's a serious question we have to ask ourselves. And you know, the UK has taken a very strong position in Ukraine, and I think actually, you know, partly one of the reasons that the Ukraine is 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 fighting so effectively against Russia is is because of UK support in Ukraine. But outside of that concern, I'm genuinely concerned that our voice is not really being heard or listened to because our government is not really respected. Uh, and again, you know, I'm not saying this as some person that atavistically, you know, is, is against the Tory party. I'm in the Tory party. I, you know, I, I, I just find that, that the situation that we're in right now is that we are looked at with confusion. Our voice is not really seen as a voice which guides and holds the ship steady. And so, yes, we're a P5 power. Yes, we're a nuclear armed state. And yes, we have a very effective armed force, which, you know, I made the point in the book that we have some first rate capabilities and and that does afford us power in the international system. But at the same time, you've got to look at things like soft power. We've just scrapped BBC Arabic, you know, our huge arms of influence across the Arab and Islamic world are fading fast. And we're becoming this kind of mercantile nation that relies heavily on trade to get, you know, its interests through and advanced. And some of the more complex questions about soft power, clever use of hard power, multilateral influence within the UN. I mean, that's it's it's dropping like a stone. And I'm very concerned. Now, look, you know, in two or three years time, that may not be the case. But where we're at right now, it, it's it's not great. We're not in a good position. Our, our voice is not respected in the way that it was. In, in the book and in the podcast, you spoke about the importance of America and the Middle East. And, you know, commentators like myself have spoken and written at length about the American withdrawal and the impact of that. But you made the point that Britain has to remain attached to U.S. foreign policy, whether we like it or not. So on that front, how are we doing? And and do we see eye to eye with the Biden administration? And do we think he's doing a good job in in MENA? 
I don't think the Biden administration is doing a good job in the Middle East, no. Does the Tory government? Not really. Um, you have, along with many commentators, will have noted the big U-turn that Biden took, you know, flying to Saudi Arabia to meet with the Gulf monarchies to try and get oil production up. There was a pre-arranged 100,000 barrel increase uh, and only was it yesterday or the day before the Saudis are now signalling that they're going to cut production again. Um, so you would broadly say that if the US's key goal in the region was the stability of energy production in a way that kind of advances uh, social mobility in their own country, bearing in mind everybody in the US drives a car and, and they're very reliant on oil prices, you would say it's been a failure because that's their top line issue. Number two, maybe you could argue that was the JCPOA, not been signed yet. That broadly seems to me a failure. Then you've got wider questions of regional stability. Well, I think where the US has done well has been to control the spread of extremist terrorist organizations, including Al-Qaeda and Daesh. Uh, and I think to that extent, I think what you're looking at is that they're becoming increasingly good at tactical insertions into the Middle East, but their strategy is, I wouldn't call it non-existent. There are a lot of people in the Eisenhower building who care about the strategic footprint of the US in the Middle East, but have not been able to execute a strategy in any meaningful way. I, you know, I, I, I've gone all out on, on criticism of the UK government, but does anyone really respect Jake Sullivan? Biden's uh, national security advisor. Like, who listens to Jake Sullivan? I don't think that we have a situation where uh, major elements of the U.S. State Department and uh, national security apparatus are respected either. So I, I, I'm very concerned, really, that our, our voice in the West at the moment is is probably not what it was. Now, when you're talking about tactical insertions, that is where I made the point in the book that the U.K. and the U.S. are almost inseparable. We work hand in glove. We have really, really good intelligence sharing cooperation, special forces cooperation, uh, and we are able to go into Syria, take out some bad guys, make sure that that ISIS threat is contained incredibly well. Um, we keep an eye on, you know, movements of assets to Hezbollah, make sure that they're contained. So I, I, I think in that frame, actually, we've done a good job. So it's it's not all bad news. But in terms of, you know, the, the Americans always used to use this phrase under the Bush administration, the region we would like to see, right? They would always have this strategic vision of the region we would like to see. I don't think they know what that looks like anymore. And I don't think even if they did that, they would be able to achieve uh, an outcome that brought that about. So, you know, we are still suffering a little bit from the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the sense that Biden is pivoting to East Asia and that we just have to be part of that pivot. So, uh, we're not the only ones with problems. The book uh, touches on the issue of climate change, and you spoke about it in our last podcast. Middle East is absolutely on the front lines. And you suggested this is a portfolio that can be shared and shared constructively. So what are your thoughts uh, about uh, and your expectations about the COP27 at Sharm el-Sheikh in November? So it's COP27 and COP28, right? Because uh, the Emiratis are hosting COP28 next year. And conversations are already well underway for constructive dialogues in that arena, particularly South to South dialogues. So I, I have said, and I've made it 
very clear in my own work uh, as, you know, in the development sector, uh, when I speak to Emiratis, Qataris, Saudis, that this is a golden moment for the Gulf states to start leading on this debate. Don't greenwash. Don't build a, a carbon neutral city. Nobody cares about your carbon neutral city. What they care about is you leading a debate to encourage countries that are suffering grievously from the effects of climate change to coordinate in a way that doesn't require COP mechanisms or south-to-south dialogues that are, you know, sort of old and tested and and slightly, um, you know, I would say anachronistic, actually. What, What tends to happen with the COP mechanisms is that you get countries like Pakistan, which have just been devastated by floods, turning up and saying, we have so many problems, we have a fifth of the world's water in our mountains, it's going to melt, we have huge you know, climate change issues, help us, please. And everybody goes, okay, well, we need to find some money. That is not a constructive way to approach this. What we need to do is we need to start coming up with indigenous uh, solutions from Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, uh, South Asian countries, led through the Gulf, through their initiatives, through their ability to mobilize capital, through their ability to mobilize debates. You know, I see so many problems as a result of climate change heading the way of the Gulf states. One, for example, Bill, malaria. The world is getting warmer. There's more stagnant water about, more rain. The malaria mosquito is moving west from Southeast Asia and it's heading towards the Gulf. You know, this is just one of the, the climate change impacts that we're seeing is the increase in vector-borne diseases. I've had many constructive conversations with the Egyptians, uh, Emiratis, Qataris, you know, about these sorts of things. And actually, they get it. They understand. They know that this is not just a case now about the polar bears in the Arctic, right? This is a case about wholesale change of the human way of life. You're talking about 500 million people on the move by the middle of the century if things keep going the way they are. Where are they going to go? What about extremist organizations? Who's going to provide the food? Bear in mind, we're in a food security crisis as a result of the Ukraine conflict and as a result of desertification. So all of these issues, since we last spoke, are interlinking in a way that Actually, I, I'm not going to say it was in my worst nightmare. That's a bit hyperbolic, but I, I'm starting to worry because I'm starting to see all the links in between them. I think that the conversations that are being had with the Gulf states and also with Egypt are increasingly constructive and leading to a point where there is more understanding, uh, particularly amongst the policy elites, that that something's got to be done. Now, do I think that Egypt's COP is going to be a particularly you know, impactful one? Probably not. I don't think that all the groundwork has really been laid in a way uh, that the UK in particular, as the holder of, of the previous COP, would like to see. I think there's going to be more of a focus on the impacts for Africa, uh, which is fine. I think actually that's a reasonable thing to be talking about if you're in Sharm el uh, But in terms of the geopolitical aspects here, I'm, I'm looking towards Dubai as the big one. And I think that's, that's the chance for us to really get this moving. So, yeah, big threats and, as you say, big opportunities. And the, the Gulf states could indeed be leaders in that. I hope they are. I hope they are. I mean, it's it's really up to them. They've got to make the choice as to whether they really want to lead or not. I, I've seen some green shoots, but they've got to do more than just set up, you know, research centres and, and build green cities. It now has to be, it's, it's action time. And let's see what they do, because... The problem that you've got is, you know, they are, as we said in the beginning of this podcast, 
central to the global energy economy. That is going to take precedence over many other considerations. But at the same time, they've got to balance this with the fact that the writing's on the wall. Climate change is here and it's happening faster than we thought. Mm. Well, let me end, Mike, by quoting the very last sentence you and your co-editor, Christopher Phillips, wrote. Our hope is that this book lays the foundation for thinking about the region in a structured and comprehensive way for the next decade and serves as a baseline for thinking about how to reformulate Britain's relationship with the Middle East. So when you're on, how is Britain doing? Not very well. (laughs) I didn't foresee the Ukraine conflict exploding in the way that it did and everybody's attention being drawn to that in a way that, um, that really did detract from strategic questions elsewhere. You know, we knew that this was going to be a challenge. The Ukraine conflict just accelerated the challenges that we were already highlighting in the book. So, I mean, I'm very appreciative of the fact you think that the book has longevity post when it was written. And I think we probably have been able to absorb that up and down of the Ukraine crisis quite well. But we, we warned that strategy was going to be a, a fool's errand in, in, in the region for the UK. And that we had to be very, very clear about what our interests were and pursue them unapologetically. Now, the one thing that we have done, I think, is, is you know, through Simon Penny and others going out to the region and, and, and with the trade missions that we're sending, we've been very good at building that frame of our strategy. Our national security strategy... You know, the basing infrastructure remains in place. Uh, you know, you, you've spent a lot of time in Bahrain. You've seen the basing out there. You know, that's all going very well. But in terms of a footprint for a more stable, productive relationship between us and our major allies, I, I'm not sure we're there yet. You know, it's it's only a year on, in fairness. But but I don't think that the... I, I would give the, the, the British kind of policy establishment a, a sort of C+. Plus. It's not bad, but it's also not great. You know, there's a lot more we could be doing. And I think the time is right to be starting to focus on what that looks like. Now that we've got an update to the integrated review coming, let's have a look at that. Let's situate the Middle East within our geo strategy a little better than was done uh, in the integrated review and uh, pursue that uh, in, in a constructive way to the extent that we can. Right. You know, we've alluded to this a couple of times now about our domestic political instability. If we are and we continue to be domestically politically unstable, I'm afraid foreign policy and, and strategic policy is, is much more difficult to do. So let's hope that uh, whatever happens in, in the next year or two, that we, we come through some choppy waters domestically. Uh, and particularly given that the cost of living is rising here and, and people are struggling and that we're able to then think about these key foreign policy questions before we lose too much ground with critical relationships in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, it's all there and we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, very interesting times. Thanks so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure as always. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the Middle East analyst and writer Michael Stevens. He's the co-editor of What Next for Britain in the Middle East, published last year by I.B. Torres. I recommend it highly. We launched our podcast in 2020, and two years on, we are now closing in on 100,000 listeners with an audience in countries right around the world. So, a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Amazon, or other platforms. 
In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA experts, contributors like Michael. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your free trial period is ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. If you're a student or academic, check if your university library has an Arab Digest subscription. If so, you can access a digest for free. And if not, ask your library to consider getting one. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.